Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Everyone else, if you guys would please pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as I open your word to your people. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would descend on me, that you would anoint me with unction for the preaching of your word this morning. God, that the words that I speak here would flow out of a heart of devotion. And that everyone here would hear them for what they are. God, we don't need more of me or more of us. We need more of you this morning. So we pray right now that you would reveal your glory to us this morning. That you would give us insight and healing. And that you would save the lost. God, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, as you know, um, Shane and I were on vacation for um, a week, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we went uh, to Colorado. It was actually, it was one of those vacations where it's, uh, it's fun, but it's not restful, okay? You, you guys know those vacations where the vacation is actually kind of like work? That was kind of what we did. Uh, we crammed too much stuff in. We got, you know, drove up to Colorado Springs and hung out with friends, and then we went camping, which, again, is, we call it type two fun. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of that. Type two fun is the kind of fun that's fun afterwards. It's not fun while you're doing it. That's how I think of camping. I did it for a living for a long time, so it's not really that exciting to me. Uh, but we went camping, and then on our way back, because we hadn't done enough, we crammed in one last event. Our friends called us up and said, you know what would be really fun? If we went to Frontier Days in Wyoming. Yeah, exactly. I heard somebody knows. I did not know what that was. In my mind, I thought Wyoming, like I drove through Wyoming once, there's like five people in all of Wyoming. There's like nobody there. How could it possibly be that big? I thought it was going to be kind of like a, like a toned down version of the Fort Bend County uh, Fair. You know, where you have like some rides and some funnel cakes and, uh, and then you go and you like listen to a concert and it's pretty cool. So we were going to go to the Cody Johnson concert, which I like Texas country, so he does Texas country, so I went there. It was not that. It was like, I don't know where, there's not that many people in Wyoming. There, there must have been a million people there crammed into this place that was not meant to hold that many people. We had to park like 30 blocks away. I didn't know there were 30 blocks in all of Cheyenne, Wyoming. <laughs> we go into this place, and it was this incredibly unique moment. I hadn't really gone to a concert like this. We're packed in. Everybody's got cowboy hats. Everybody's super excited. They start singing. And, but probably the most iconic moment in the evening for me, I'm sitting there. I'm kind of coping with the crowds. It's not great for me. Had some experiences early in life, not good with crowds, okay? So I'm sitting there, I got my son next to me, we're just kind of like, okay, I'm watching around, I'm doing people watching, which is the best part of all concerts, is people watching, and I see this woman in front of me, and she's probably, 
mid-20s. And she's got a baby in a snuggly. So this thing is like, it's a baby, and it's a little baby, right? We're talking like a, like a five-month-old baby. It's a little bitty baby strapped to the front of her chest with one of these like baby wrap things and they've got little earmuffs. I didn't know they made earmuffs this big, but there are earmuffs and they look like they're duct taped to this baby's head <laughs> because it's loud. And she's sitting there standing. I mean, you could tell this woman has not been out of the house, right? She's in the middle of that early childhood, you know, when you have a baby and it's terrible for the first ever, um, and like the baby's been crying forever, and she hasn't, but this is her first time out. She's got her husband there. I think it's her husband. I'm, I hope it's her husband. They're sitting there, and she's just standing up there, and she is praising Cody Johnson. <laughs> but the thing that stuck out to me was it was the most authentic worship experience like, you know, when you see somebody and they're just pouring out their heart, like they're just, you can tell they're in the midst of this ecstatic state. That was her. She was totally giving herself over to the music. She was truly worshiping. She just wasn't worshiping God. And our passage this morning that, that's the heart of it. So what is the true nature of worship? Because I'm going to tell you guys, often the best worship that I experience does not happen in a church. Very often, the deepest, most authentic worship that I get to witness happens outside of the church. And often, it has nothing to do with God. This morning, we're going to pick up our study in the book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to look at a woman who is deeply enmeshed in worship. And both the form of her worship and the object of her worship are correct. If you were with us last week, you know we just started a series on the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel charts the rise of and ministry of three distinct leaders in Israel. Okay, as we go through the book of 1 Samuel, throughout the fall and winter, maybe spring, into the summer, a year, I don't know how long it's going to take us in 1 Samuel, so I'm not committing to anything. What we're going to see is there's three leaders that are going to rise in Israel. Samuel, King Saul, and then King David. And each of these men is going to interact with God's people in different ways. Some of them will be good, some of them will be bad. Some of the leaders will triumph, some of the leaders will fall. But as we examine their lives, we're going to begin to see how God uses broken and flawed people from bad backgrounds to do amazing things. Well, last week we were introduced to the woman Hannah, and Hannah, is, Hannah and Elkanah are the mother and father of Samuel the last of the great prophets of Israel. Not prophets, I'm sorry. The last of the great judges of Israel. These prophet, priest, leaders before Israel had a king. And Elkanah and Hannah have this very complicated family life. Elkanah has multiple wives. Um, 
Hannah is not, can't have a baby. She goes into the sanctuary and, uh, and, and she makes this vow to God. She prays to God with all of her heart. And God listens to her and gives her a child. And we're going to begin, we're going to pick up a little bit uh, before our, our scripture this morning. We're going to start in verse 21 of chapter 1. This is after she has returned home. She's returned home. She's become pregnant. She's had a baby. And now her husband is preparing to lead everybody back to, uh, back to Shiloh. Once a year, they go to Shiloh. They do an, a worship kind of service there. They do a big sacrifice. He's getting everybody together. And he's expecting that Hannah is going to come with him. And kind of, uh, it's going to be a new thing for her. Before, it's been really bittersweet. She had to sit around and watch while her, her, the other wife had all of her kids around her. But now Hannah has a baby of her own. Uh, and this is, this is what we read. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Now let's go back just a little bit. You remember their last time that they're up in Shiloh, Elkanah has Hannah there. Hannah's weeping and broken because her, the other wife has her family around her and is mocking her. Everybody's making fun of Hannah because she's barren. And her husband comes to her kind of, uh, and, and we looked at this kind of comic scene where he doesn't really know what to say. And he's like, am I not more to you than ten sons? And she's like, no, you're really not. So obviously, she's come home, she's gotten pregnant, and now uh, Elkanah has got to be thinking, yes, the problem is solved. Right? Guys, you know what that's like. You, you get to the end of the discussion, you get to the end of the argument, and you're like, whew, finally, we've put a pin in this, we're good. We don't have to, and really what we're not saying is, I don't have to talk about this anymore. You have a child your barrenness has been lifted. God has answered your prayer. And now we can move on with our lives. And I have a son. My favorite wife has given me a son. And now in the midst of all of this, Hannah says, yes, I gave you a son. Yes, God has given me a son. And now we're going to give him back to God. We're going to take this child we're going to go to the house of meeting and we're going to leave him there. And he's going to be dedicated as a Nazarite before the Lord. That is shocking. This is the child that she prayed for. This is the sign of God's blessing on his family. And yet, Hannah is willing to give this child up to dedicate him to the Lord. Now, Elkanah has the ability to cancel her vow. As the, as the husband and the man of the house, the Torah gives him very clearly the ability to say, no, I don't think we're going to do that. I don't think that's a good idea for you. I don't think that's a good idea for us. I'm going to cancel her vow. But he doesn't do it. We read in verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. 
See, Hannah was so overwhelmed by the goodness and the glory of God that she wanted to give back to him the first fruits of his faithfulness to her. She had a grateful heart. She knew where the blessing had come from. And as we're going to see poured out over and over again in the next several verses, true worship begins with a heart that's filled with the glory of God. She knows who God is and he, she knows what he's done. And she is responding to God's goodness with this amazing act of worship. Well, Hannah's made a hard vow. And I want you to think about what's happening now. She remains behind. We read in verse 23, the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh. I want to stop for this just a second there. Um, in our current world, in our culture, a woman will breastfeed, if she breastfeeds at all, she'll breastfeed about six months, maybe a year. If she's an outlier, she'll breastfeed for maybe two or three years. There was a, a Time, I think it was a Time magazine photo like several years ago where this woman is like breastfeeding a toddler and everybody's like, oh, that's kind of weird. But at this time, it would not be strange for a woman to breastfeed a child until that child was three or four years old. Okay, this is because there was no formula. There was no baby food. Okay, there, they didn't have any of that kind of stuff. You had like grain. That was it. And so the best way for that child to eat was by breastfeeding. And so what she has done is she has taken this child, this child who is the, the symbol of God's blessing to her, the only child that she may feel she's ever going to have, her only son, not just a regular child, but a son. And as she is holding him and caring for him and loving him and looking down at him and singing to him and feeding him, the entire time she knows that this child will be taken away from her. Not in 20 years when he goes off to college, not in 18 years when he goes off to the military, not in 15 years when he goes off to boarding school or something like that, but in two or three years when she is going to take her infant son, her toddler son, and drop him off at the temple, and wave goodbye. This act of sacrifice that she is doing, this act of faithfulness, is not a once and done kind of thing. This is a thing that she has to think about every minute of every day for years and years and years as she prepares to give to God that which is most precious to her. In its own way, this is as dramatic as the sacrifice that Abraham was asked to give. You remember that story where Abraham prays for a son and prays for a son and prays for a son and finally in his old age, his old wife has a baby, this miraculous baby and the first thing that we read after that is that God says, hey, I'm really glad you have this grown son. Go take him and kill him for me. Sacrifice your son to me. Now Hannah's not being asked to kill her son but she is being asked to give him up. And so we fast forward four years. 
And it's now the time to present Samuel before the face of God. And we read that when she had weaned him, she took along with her a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when they slaughtered the bull, they brought the child to Eli. Now, I need you to understand what's going on here, too. When we read in the ESV or the NASB or these different Bible uh, translations, they'll say a three-year-old bull. But most biblical scholars agree that it's actually not a three-year-old bull. It's three-year-old bulls. And we know that because the offering that she's giving is the appropriate offering for three animals. Okay? Sometimes when we read this, we don't really understand. We're talking about a huge amount of flour and a huge amount of wine. It's like a big bag of wine, like a keg of wine that's on the back of this. So she's, she's going with her most precious son and three bulls and a big bag of flour and a big thing of wine, and they're going to go up there, and she's going to sacrifice. Like, she's not going to do this halfway. She's about to give up her only son to the service of the Lord, and she is going to dedicate him with a truly amazing sacrifice. And she goes up there. And as the sacrifice is going on, because she actually can't do the sacrifice, she's giving the stuff to her husband, this huge amount of wealth, this amazing gift. And as she comes into the tent of meeting, she goes up to Eli the priest and reminds him and says, hey, remember me? I was the one that was praying so fervently that you thought I was drunk. I just wanted to let you know that I am here to pay my vow. I am here to dedicate this child to the Lord with a massive sacrifice. And in the last kind of verse there we read, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, and so he is lent to the Lord. And we read that Eli and Elkanah worshipped the Lord there. They saw the faithfulness of this woman, and they began to worship because of it. Hannah had given back to God her most precious gift. And I, I need us to understand what, what we draw from this is that true worship requires sacrifice. It has to come from a heart of gratitude that glorifies God, and it requires sacrifice. And we're not comfortable with the idea of sacrifice as 21st century Christians. We don't like anything about it. We don't like the idea of killing an animal and sacrificing it, and we don't like the idea of giving up something that we have. But throughout the history of Israel, it was a, a given that you could not worship God without sacrifice. Even before there is a Mosaic code, anytime people come together to say thank you to God, they offer a sacrifice. Almost the first thing that happens in Scripture, after Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, we have this story about two men that are offering sacrifice. Because there is no true worship without sacrifice. But we need to understand this. We do not sacrifice because God needs something from us. The ancient religion 
The idea would be you would manipulate God by giving him certain things. Like they would think that God needed to eat the, the smell from the sacrifice, that that's how we fed God. And so God relied on us almost the way like a, a ruler would rely on his servants. But that's not what God is doing. God doesn't need anything from us. Scripture is very clear. Our dad goes the cattle on a thousand hills. He dwells in the heavens and he needs nothing. He doesn't need anything you have. And yet, Without worship, without sacrifice, there is no worship. So what's going on here? See, God doesn't need the blood of bulls or goats, and he doesn't need bread or bread to eat or wine to drink. These are all things that God has given to us. These are blessings that he has blessed us with. And we worship him by giving back to him a portion of what he's given to us. From the beginning, God's people sacrificed animals to him. And this was for a very special reason. From the very beginning, God told his people that blood covered sin. Remember, Garden of Eden, let's go all the way back, Adam and Eve. Right? Adam and Eve are running around naked, doing naked stuff. Then they sin. They're like, oh, we're naked. And they sew some fig leaves together and like, oh, this isn't really working that well. God finds them. They have their conversation about what they've done. They get the curse. And what's the first thing that God does after that? He goes, takes something beautiful that he's made and kills it and uses the skin to cover them. Now, God can do anything. He could have conjured Louis Vuitton out of thin air or Hugo Boss or Old Navy. He didn't do that. He killed something and used it to cover their sin. Because for the rest of the testimony in the Old Testament and the New Testament, blood covers sin. Death has to result from sin. And so when the people of God come together to make atonement for the things that they've done, God tells them what they need to do. They have to kill something. And that thing that they kill takes the sin and atones for what they did. Does that sound like anything? It should, because it is a picture of what Christ will do throughout the Old Testament. God builds into them a system of sacrifice that all points to what Jesus is going to do. So they sacrifice things, but they don't just sacrifice animals. They also sacrifice the first fruits. And so just as sacrifice begins in the Old Testament and travels through, so does the concept of the tithe. Oh, don't talk about that, Pastor. Some of y'all will be like, every time I come to church, you're talking about tithing. I talk about tithing like once a year. If, if that's you, that's not on me. That's on God, okay? From the very beginning, God's people have known that they have to give up a portion of what God has given to them. As far back as Abraham. Abraham goes and conquers a bunch of kings. The first thing that he does is he finds a priest of the living God and he gives a tenth of all that he has to him. And that doesn't change. It predates the law. But why? Is it because God needs your money? 
No, he doesn't. Again, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all of it. He demands a portion back so that you will know that he owns all of it. And here's the amazing thing, right? Not only does he ask for a portion, but he gives back way more than what he asks. Over and over and over again, we see that those who are faithful are rewarded by God. This isn't prosperity gospel. We're not saying that you earn God's favor. What we are saying is that if you are faithful in small things, God will be faithful in large things. And even Hannah. Hannah gives up her son, her only son, the gift of the promise. You know what happens? We're told later on in the book that she ends up having many more sons and many more daughters. And I know that for some of you who have like one or two kids like me, that doesn't sound like a good thing, but it is a good thing. You cannot outgive God. If you are faithful to Him in small things, He will give you more to be faithful with. And Hannah knows this. And so now, now that she has poured out her soul and now that she has sacrificed to God, and she's given back to God more than, than anyone could ever be expected to give, she stands in the tent of meeting and she begins to sing. She begins to cry out and declare the excellence of God. We read in verse 1 of chapter 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord and my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. You got to understand that there is more here than just family drama. This isn't just about one woman and one man and the struggle that they're having. This is an opportunity for Hannah to declare the excellence of God. And whether she knows it or not, her story of redemption and healing represents what is going to happen to Israel. See, God does in our lives in small ways, what God does to His people in large ways. And the story of Samuel begins in this very small, very intimate, very personal set of relationships. But these are going to stand for what God is going to do throughout the rest of the chapters of 1 Samuel. There is a tradition in Scripture that involves characters singing praises to God. All the way back in Genesis ch chapter 2, the first thing that Adam does when God brings him a naked woman is he starts singing. He says, you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And I will call you woman. When the armies of Pharaoh are destroyed... Moses' sister Miriam dances and sings over and over again. We see the people of God singing out the praises of God and they're always songs that extol the greatness of all that God does. What we're going to see in the book of 1 Samuel is that Hannah's song at the beginning of the book 
actually connects with David's song at the end of the book. It creates these bookends that encapsulate everything that's happening in between. This great song of praise. So what does she say? Well, she starts by saying that God is a God of refuge. She praises God and declares Him holy and solid, a rock of refuge. This is one of the first psalms that we have in the Bible. And it connects to this image of God as the strong place, the fortress, the strong tower, the place that a person that is broken can go to hide. But more than that, she exalts the Lord because He has raised up the lowly and humbled the proud. In fact, the majority of this psalm is about a theme that we will call the great reversal. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not the arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by Him actions are weighed. The bow of the mighty is broken, but the feebles bound in strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. He makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. See, God is provider and protector and judge. And she knows this because he has provided and protected and judged. Everyone who has mocked her has been put to shame. Everyone who called into question her devotion to God has seen what God can do. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you wish you could see that sometimes? As we sit in a place in a time when our God is mocked everywhere, all the time. Don't you want to see vindication? Imagine what that feels like when the people that have mocked you have been put to shame. That's what she's proclaiming here. She praises God for His provision and His protection and His justice. He decla she declares that He will guard the feet of the faithful one. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Well, now she's talking about things that are larger than just a spat that she's having with a woman that her husband's married to. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in the heaven. See, she has transitioned now from talking about her small problem to the large problem that Israel is having. Israel is being crushed by the Philistines, a technologically advanced people that have conquered them. We're told later on, Israel can't even make their own farming implements. They have to go down and, and get their... They're rakes and hoes and, and plows made by the Philistines and they get, they get abused by them and, and price gouged by them and, and oppressed by them. And so Hannah is sitting there as she has had her shame and her brokenness fixed by God and she's declaring, if he can fix me, if he can make a barren woman have children, then he can fix the problems of Israel. Oh, Israel, if we would just turn to God the great justice and peace 
Oh, God, if you would come down and heal this nation. See, in her humility and in her brokenness, as she worships God, the Spirit of God begins to come into her and begins to prophesy, begins to speak. And she begins to speak things that are much larger than where she is. That is what worship is, y'all. But then something even more amazing happens. Listen to these last verses. The Lord will judge to the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. You need to understand that there is no king in Israel at this time. No one has been anointed as the savior of the Jewish people at this time. Hannah is speaking out of her spirit-filled ecstasy and is prophesying about what will come. She is talking about the work that her son Samuel will do. Samuel will be the one that anoints the boy named David to become the king over all Israel. But more than that, David will be the one who rescues Israel, but David will be a shadow of the one that is to come. The anointed one of God, the Messiah, that God will draw back to save his people. And so as Hannah worships with all of her heart in true sacrifice, she begins to see the glory of God poured out in front of her in a way that she can't contain, and she begins to declare to Israel about Israel's Savior, the one that they have been hoping for from the very beginning. See, all of the praises and all the promises of Hannah will be fulfilled in Israel's true and eternal King. It'll be fulfilled in Jesus. See, worship has to come from a heart that is filled with gratitude towards God, and it has to involve sacrifice. But most importantly, it has to declare the faithfulness of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, know this. Gratitude and Christ are the heart of true worship. Hannah's praise reveals the king who is worthy of worship. And we must also cultivate hearts that are grateful for the work that Christ has done. They were looking forward to what Christ was doing. And we can look back to what Christ has done. So as we come into this building here, and we ask the question, what does it take to truly worship God? Guys, I need you to understand that it begins by hearts that are broken for what God has done for you. All of this begins in gratitude. And I think sometimes, as Christians, as people in the church, we find it hard to worship because we're not grateful. Because, see, we focus so much on the problems that we have we focus on the things that we don't have, on the limitations, the things that we haven't been given, that we do not acknowledge the things that God has done. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to take a moment to think about the ways that God has poured out His blessing on us.
Because we have been blessed beyond comprehension. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you will dwell with Him forever. There is no end to your time with your Savior. But more than that, you have been called into a life-changing, universe-changing mission with the King of Kings. He chose you and plucked you out of a world full of dead people, breathed life into you, and then sent you out on mission for Him. That means that as a Christian, you can never think that your life doesn't matter. You, you can never think that it's all pointless. Because everything that you do has great and weighty purpose. Oh, that we would embrace that. That that would change us. That we would begin to live out. Think about what your life would look like if you lived every single day out of a place of gratefulness. Think about what that would do with the way that you treat the people around you. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's the beginning of a heart of worship. And if we do that, if we were to come to God from a place of gratefulness, if we were to think regularly about the things that God has done for us instead of the things that we still need to have done, then we would be able to worship Him with sacrifice. Not by killing goats up here at the front, but by sacrificing our preferences. Whoa, that's a little bit different, isn't it? It's easy to take a goat up here and cut its throat. It's really hard. It, it's actually pretty hard. I had, it's really difficult to do that. But you know what's harder than killing a goat? Giving up your preferences. Worshiping the music you don't like. Being in a place that isn't the right temperature. Like right now, it's got to be 80 degrees up here. Yeah, it is. Maybe being around people you don't particularly care for. Hmm? That takes some sacrifice. Maybe getting up in the morning to come to church. Those of you that are watching on Facebook, we love you. We're just glad you're here. There are all manner of things that God is asking you to give up to be able to deepen your relationship with Him. Not so that you can earn His favor, but so that you can become the person that He's called you to be. Giving up control over your money, giving up control over your time, giving up control over your preferences, taking the time to build your life around Him. These are the sacrifices that God is calling us to do. Romans 12.1 says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves, your souls and your bodies, as a living sacrifice. That means every day of your life, you are sacrificing your choices, your will, your preferences on the cross of Christ. That means it doesn't matter if you don't like the person next to you in the cubicle. You still have to treat them like a child of God. It means that no matter how much of an egregious jerk the person in front of you is, when they cut you off, it might be me, 
you can't respond to them in hatred. It means no matter how badly your spouse has treated you, you have to forgive them. Now remember, that doesn't mean you have to stay in an abusive situation or a place that's dangerous, okay? But it does mean that you cannot hold hate in your heart towards this person. Oh, brothers and sisters, God is calling us to worship Him through sacrifice every day of our lives. But here's the amazing thing. When we do, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God that is revealed, we get to begin to see the glory of God poured out to us. We get to see God in all of His majesty and all of His plan. And all of it is a precursor, a shadow of what we will get to see on the other side of death. Brothers and sisters, I want to call on you this morning. Worship God the way that Hannah worshipped God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind pouring out everything that you have in gratitude for a God who gave His Son to die for you. And do it every moment of every day for the rest of your life. Now some of you, this doesn't make any sense at all. You have no idea why you should worship a fairy tale character in a book. Why would you sacrifice your will and your preferences for something that may just be a lie? So I want to encourage you. The first act of worship is the act of faith. When we sacrifice our preferences and our desire for ourselves on the altar of God, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. See, Hannah was looking forward to Jesus, and we look backward to Jesus, but we have to accept Jesus in order to be able to worship Him. And if you've never done that, and your life is a steaming wreck right now, I want to encourage you. Try it. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to pray. And if you have never asked Jesus into your heart, if you have never, and by that, I mean if you have not accepted Him as the Lord and Savior of your life, if you never said, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I need you to take my sin. If you have never done that, I would encourage you to pray and cry out to Him. He is big enough to take on all the sins that you've ever committed, but you have to ask Him, and you have to accept Him. If you would like to know how to do that, we're going to have some folks that are going to be up here that would love to pray with you and show you how you can have a relationship with Christ. Maybe you've done that. But that's the only thing you've ever done. And you've spent your life as an enemy of God, running away from Him and wandering from Him. Well, I want you to know, just like Hannah, there is no place that you can go that God can't find you. And nothing that you can do to yourself that God can't redeem. If you find yourself in this place today, just in need of redemption and healing, come forward. And we will pray for you.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. that you would awaken inside.